may our hearts, as we come before God today, be like that fourth soil that you've heard preached here in our church. That that soil that maybe on the outside doesn't seem that different from the other soils, but there's something about a completely wide clearing that is then also nutrient-rich, that is open to the sowing of the seed of God's word. That, that God just does the rest. You know, Pastor Hanley, last week when he preached uh, in English, he talked about how when the seed is sown, Jesus gives instructions and he describes the farmer as going to sleep. And then waking up, next thing you know, something sprouts. It might take years. It might take months. For some of you guys, you've been in this church, you've heard God's word preached for your whole life. And maybe you're still yearning or maybe you're still resisting for that seed to sprout. There's some of us here. Maybe this is your first time coming to youth service and we welcome you. It's because you're new to our church. Maybe you're a friend. Uh, maybe you just kind of moved into the area and maybe you're checking us out. Well, you know what? What we're doing here is we're going to be sharing God's word with you. And we'll be praying for you that when God's word is understood and it lands on your heart, that it will be very soft and receptive to what he wants to do with it. So please join me in prayer as we go into this morning's message. Father, we thank you so much, God, for your goodness in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen the mission of Jesus, Lord, to preach the kingdom, to give his life as a ransom, to be a servant, but to also to be a leader that gives his life for his people. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we're able to see him teach, we're able to hear the wisdom and the beauty of the Gospel that the cry to repent and believe in him, the desire to walk with Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for those that he has called. We thank you, Father, that that numbers many of us here as well, people that have responded to the call of Jesus. And as we see now traveling through the book of Mark, these disciples and these crowds building up as Jesus continues to teach and preach faithfully, we thank you, Lord, that through your word being inspired and recorded for us and being preached and read today, God, that we could be amongst that crowd and that we could simply hear and see you work. God, may you open up our hearts, may you soften it even right now. Maybe we come in today thinking we've heard a million sermons and this one will just be another. Maybe this is going to be brand new for us, God, so that when we hear these words, they sound different or unusual to our ears. Maybe we're in the middle of those two extremes. But we pray, Father, that wherever it is that we are, that you would... Meet us here. The way that you have always called your disciples to be near to you, to walk with you, to live life with you, to experience trials and joys and miracles with you. Help us, Father, to have that desire as we meet here now. Meet us where we are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to go into Mark chapter 4. And originally how... Today was supposed to be, it was supposed to go into the first 20 verses of chapter 5 too. So you can imagine that would be an extremely long passage. But what we decided to do uh, is we're going to chop it up into two passages, two messages, so that in two weeks from now, when youth combines with English, Pastor Hanley will touch and preach on chapter 5 verses 1 through 20. Which means that I get to have a much shorter chunk today, and, and I hope to really be able to dive in really deeply in comparison, and to be able to... Maybe uh, flesh out some things about a story that we've probably along the way have heard in some ways because it's one of the more famous things that Jesus has become known to do 
in the Gospels. These miracles over nature. These commands over things that you shouldn't have command of. Jesus can do it. And when he does this, every single time, whether it's multiplying food, whether it's healing the sick, whether it's calming the storm, we're reminded then that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. Jesus is special, not like any other. No one before him, no one since him, that Jesus is God. So we come before the Gospel of Mark today in the same place. <laughs> now I'm going to see if this, uh, this works here. Oh, yes! It is a great day today. Well, so maybe it helps to place us a little bit geographically in terms of what we are and what we're doing, because sometimes we hear about places and we see descriptions of boats and journeys and storms. You're like, well, you know what? That's as foreign to me as you describing somewhere in the Midwest. You've not been there. You have no idea what you're talking about or what you're imagining. Well, this is what we're talking about. Whenever you see in the Gospels or hear or read in the Gospels about Jesus and his disciples crossing the sea, it is this sea right here. It is the Sea of Galilee. Okay? Um, and, and this sea is where so much happens all around. On the north side, Capernaum is where Jesus often makes his headquarters. Peter lives there. He crosses in a variety of different places and locations and times to meet with people, to speak with people. When he's teaching and, and feeding and he's preaching, he oftentimes will find himself in these locations that is described in the Bible. And so where we're at today is after Jesus had taken the time uh, to, to call the disciples and he's performing miracles, he's taught about the significance of parables and explained some of them privately to his disciples in chapter 4. It's been a long day, and we see that in the beginning of verse 35, that it's been all day that Jesus has been doing this. And finally, now evening has come, so this arrow right here, is this working too? Oh, wow, it doesn't work on the screen though, huh? But this yellow arrow right here is pretty much where we find ourselves. And you see right in the smack dab of that yellow arrow, it says storm on the sea. That's today's story. They're in the middle of the sea. That's the giant lake. It's not a super big sea, but then that kind of gives you a little bit of idea then. Well, what can you expect when you have this big lake? What might you find in there? And maybe you might find a storm, but you got to wonder, is it a storm as big, as powerful, as scary as what is described here in Mark chapter 4? So right away, we jump into it. On this day, on that day, after all of this ministry, after all of this teaching, Jesus being faithful, he is the one that calls his disciples to go to the other side. His specific words were, let us go across to the other side. So Jesus is initiating this trip, okay? And he's in good hands. In verse 36, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, why do I say they're in good hands? Do you guys remember in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus called the first disciples? Peter and Andrew, James and John. Who were they? Fishermen. They spent their livelihoods, their waking hours, hanging out in that sea. That was their thing. They would go in the morning. They would get all their stuff clean the night before. They would go in the morning. They would go venture out to a spot in the lake somewhere, and they would fish. And they would fish. And they would fish. Now, being that this is their livelihood, do you think that they have encountered you know, inclement weather before? Absolutely. It's never just smooth sailing. That's why it's a tough life to be a fisherman. 
right? So these guys know where they're going. These guys are familiar with the surroundings. They certainly wouldn't be foreigners in the boats that are going to be carrying them and Jesus. And they're going. And I like how when Jesus commanded them to do this, you flip it around and it was they who took Jesus because they're the fishermen, right? They're the hosts. They're the people that know what is going on. Last week, my family, we took a family vacation to Seattle. Have you seen this before? Because if you have, you will be traumatized and remember it forever. But if you haven't, this is what it is. This is called the gun wall. Okay, it's in Pike Street Market, which is like the, the first public market in the United States. Uh, it's been around for like 100 something years and it's still open today. This guy is Matt. He was our tour guide. We went on a tour of Pike Street because we're foreigners, we're tourists. We didn't know where to go. We, recommend, we were recommended to check out this particular tour. Well, it's called the gum wall. You know why? That's all gum. It's disgusting. It is all gum. People chew it, they put it on the wall. They chew it, they put it on a wall, it gets pretty high. He's describing it, and he's telling stories as he is describing the wall and what has happened. And how it was, you know, never washed forever, but then the merchants couldn't take it anymore, so they demanded it to be washed, and they washed it, and within, like, days, all the gum was back on, and they washed it again, and they washed it again. Last time it was, like, five years ago, eight years ago or something. But it was just, you're sitting there, you're just mesmerized because you're surrounded by gum. You can smell it. You can see the wrappers. And then you, you see people writing notes and then sticking on the wall. It, it's just surreal. It's, it's gross. It's dirty. But it's unique. And there are stories behind it. Well, why was that tour meaningful? Because this guy, even though he wasn't born in Seattle, he spent the last 30 years living in Seattle. And so this is his home. And he's a really good tour guide. He went around and we, we walked through the markets. He showed us all kinds of things, shared background and history shared pictures of what it looked like maybe 100 years ago, described all these little hidden things, and it was great. And that's why we went to him, because he was from there, because he knew the stories, because this was his trade, and this was his home. When Jesus was crossing a lake, he was with, amongst other people as well, a group of fishermen. Regardless of how dangerous it got, how big the storms got, how windy, how big the waves got, these fishermen, this wouldn't be new to them. There was absolutely no reason for them to be concerned or worried. This was a normal day in the life of a fisherman. In fact, if they knew something really dangerous was coming, they probably had the wisdom to say, you know what, Jesus, let's hold off on this for a little bit. Let's not immediately go out right now. Let's wait like six hours. Let's wait till the day passes. Let's go tomorrow because then we'll be safe. But from their expertise, from what they knew, from everything they saw, it's a normal day. Let's do this. Jesus said, let's cross the sea. Let's take him there. Let's take him to where he wants to go. After all, they were the experts. Well, we start seeing something happening starting in verse 37. Now, the, the verses are on the on the screen for you. Uh, you're also welcome to look in your Bibles, but please, as usual, as normal, don't get distracted by your phones. It's, it's not worth it. God's word is just going to slip right by you if you get distracted. So, but starting verse 37, you see this description of what happens. And a great windstorm arose. When theologians write about this, when they look at the language, 
how they see this described is it's not just like, oh, it's like a large pitter-patter of water. This is like hurricane-quality storm, which you just don't even expect to see in the lake. I mean, I don't know enough about weather stuff and water stuff, but that kind of weather just doesn't happen as often in a small, enclosed lake like that. And you got to wonder, did Jesus know this? Because Jesus knows so much. But a great windstorm, a hurricane, typhoon-level windstorm arose in the lake. Let's keep going. And how do you know it's traumatic and scary? The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat were already filling. Again, I ask you, would fishermen have seen this? Yes. They've certainly been on fishing expeditions before where water came in from the outside to the inside because of rain and the boat was filling up. So when these guys respond in verse 38, it gives us a little bit of insight into how big the storm is. This is not you, know, you standing next to like some rapids ride and the water comes at you, you go, that was cool. You know, it's a really hot day. That was great. That felt that feels good. No, this is scary for the experts. This is scary for the professionals. Here's how they responded. Well, first, we see Jesus. He was in the stern, <laughs> asleep on the cushion. Wow, that's so detailed. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You know, so much could be understood and received just that by that one statement alone. Do you sense the urgency from the disciples? I mean, I do. It, it just jumps out through the pages. We are perishing. Teacher, oh, respectable, kind, wise, rabbi, professor, mentor, master, guy. I mean, they're, they're trying their best, right? You know, to, they know their place. They're the disciples. They're the followers. Jesus is the great one. Do not care about us. We are about to capsize. We are about to be overthrown. We're about to be killed. We're about to be flooded, inundated with water that we as professional fishermen cannot handle. We do not have a solution for this, oh great teacher, rabbi, mentor, master. If this sounds kind of familiar, well, it's because there was another story in the Old Testament that, that carried some similar details. Here's a short passage from Jonah chapter 1. Okay? Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Let me go ahead and read it for us. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Sounds familiar. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. People are just so tired, aren't they? So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps this God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. It's practically the same scenario. And, and that's not 
in accident. And we learn so much about what is going on here to see what happened there. So the disciples were absolutely astounded that Jesus was not only resting, but that they were watching him sleep and that he was so comfortable that he was sleeping on a cushion. I, I, I want to sleep that good. <laughs> Jesus was sleeping really well. And it just bothered them because they were respectful in calling him a title that was honorific. Just like when Jonah talked about his God in chapter 1, verse 9. This is what he said about his God. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. But the second part of what they said is the part that catches all of our attention. Not only does it point to the urgency of the situation, but look at what they are implying. You can look at it on two levels. Okay? And I'll have you guys think, which one do you think they meant? The first could just be physical. Kind of like, wow, Jesus, you're amazing. How can you possibly sleep during the midst of all of this? You are just physically gifted at sleeping. You could just knock out anywhere, no matter what. How do you do this? By the way, I have that gift when it comes to babies. I slept through all of my kids when they were crying at night. I'm not proud of this, but I am thankful for this. <laughs> my, my wife is amazing um, in that way. I, I didn't hear a thing for all three kids. Um, yeah, it's, it was physically amazing. And, uh, you know, not, not always the best. Um, do you think that's what they meant? That they're just like astounded? They're looking at Jesus going, wow, you're awesome. You're the best sleeper ever. You get a medal for sleeping. Is that what they meant? Well, I, I'm thinking that it was a little bit more than just like some, you know, trophy for the best sleeper ever. And, and that makes you an even better uh, master and, and disciple and mentor and everything else. I think that they were asking a very sincere question about Jesus' motivations. They were asking about his priorities. They were pretty much asking him, you know what, we're about to die. We're fishermen, and we're lost. We don't know how to get out of this. We're going to die. Where are you, Jesus, when the ones that you have called to be fishers of men that have trusted you with their lives, that have given up everything to follow you, that have left their family that have left their profession, that have sold their things, that have changed their plans to follow you, Jesus. Where are you? How dare you sleep? Now, I don't think that they were putting Jesus down. I don't think they were insulting Jesus. But, but I think the motivation of the heart in that question is, how can you just watch us die? How can we trust you when you're sleeping like this? Oh, great master, kind teacher, mentor, because they knew their place. But see, the desperation was seeping through. Where are you? We need you right now. Every hour, we need you. Where are you right now? 
when the professional fishermen ask Jesus, a carpenter by training, a rabbi and teacher in ministry, for help, you know that something different is happening. You know, the same thing happened in the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah as well. So after Jonah was faithful and, and, and preached repentance to Nineveh and, and people repented, in chapter 4, there's this interesting quote by Jonah as he talks about God. And let me explain to you why in a minute. Again, he's describing God, right? Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, he said this, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. All right, Aaron, you got to write a song about this, okay? So by next week, use those words. You know, that's a great praise song right there. Uh, I, I like that. Very specific. But you know what? Jonah wasn't praising God there. You know what he was doing in chapter 4? He was complaining. Because he didn't like the Ninevites. And he was mad that God was so kind and so good. That when Jonah went and preached repentance, that they actually repented. They actually turned for that season away from their sin. And God didn't punish them. So Jonah was so mad. Like, you know, like when your little brother, you know, doesn't get in trouble for something that you always got in trouble for? That kind of man, right? But, oh, man, he drew all over the wall with a Sharpie, you know. Like, I just, like, spilled a little something, cleaning up myself, and you yelled at me when I was, like, the same age. Jonah was mad. He's like, oh, God, you compassionate God, you kind-hearted, generous, forgiving, loving God. I hate you. I meant God. Great one. Very similar in heart to the disciples. But see, I actually think the disciples didn't mean to attack Jesus. The disciples were crying out because of their circumstances that were out of their control. And they had depended and trusted in Jesus and he was their only hope. Jonah, he himself needed to repent. That's a different story. That's the hard heart right there that Jonah had. The disciples, they're not coming with hard hearts. They're coming with genuine desperation. And maybe some question of a little bit of the goodness and the character and the mastery of Jesus as their master. When Jesus was healing people, crowds were forming. When Jesus was feeding the 5,000, and that's counting just the men, Women and children, maybe 10,000 altogether. Because everyone was full. There were 12 buckets left over. I mean, we're talking miracle. Everyone was happy. The crowds kept building. Jesus kept preaching. They followed him everywhere. He couldn't get any rest. When the good times were here, Jesus was a celebrity. But when you look at this situation, they're going through a trial. Their lives are at stake. Jesus is not popular even within his own group of disciples. Let me ask you this. Where is your heart and where is your relationship with God when you're going through some hardship? You don't have to go through a storm literally and physically to 
on one hand, be respectful to God because you know, well, he's God. I mean, who am I to talk against God? But in your heart, you're like, you know, God, I, I don't trust you. I don't know if you love me. I don't believe you will keep your promises. How about when you're struggling in school, even when you're trying your best? You know, you know that guy or that girl that like never studies and gets straight A's? Maybe it's some of you. Maybe I'm like looking at some of those people right here. But you know what? People hate you. Okay? I'm just saying. They hate you. They don't like you. Because there's some people that work really hard and they're getting a B plus, which might as well be a fail to some people. Right? Yeah. See, see, now I'm getting some response. Uh, you're, uh, it's hitting home, right? Okay. Not getting the classes and the grades or even the school that he wants it. I'm looking here and, you know, 11th graders are thinking about college. You know, the 12th graders are in the English service, but they're making decisions now. It's like, well, I wanted to go here or I wanted to study this, but I didn't get in. You could be the best friend to your friends and someone else gets the attention is more popular and people crave their approval. You're sitting here growing up in church. You could be the one that is striving for purity and moral righteousness, but yet you don't feel happy. You feel alone. You're like, why am I the only one? How could God be good? I mean, there's people that, you, whether they're Christians or not, they don't care about living for God. But look, they just seem so happy. Or at least that's the image that we receive oftentimes on social media. That they're so happy. Their lives are perfect. But they're not following Jesus. They don't have a fear of God. They don't even know what a Bible is. How is that okay? So you come to God. Maybe in your own time. Maybe you're faithful and, and reading His Word every day and praying. And you come to Him and you're respectful. God, Maker of heaven and earth. These praise songs that we sing on Sundays, you open up with that, right? But then the grumbling kicks in almost immediately like the disciples did. Teacher, do you not care that we are finished? Notice how they addressed Jesus' heart, not his actions. The heart is actually what really is the deep part. Your actions can mask a variety of different states of heart. But your heart, they didn't say, hey, Jesus, how come you're not helping us? They didn't say, hey, Jesus, how come you're not, you know, pouring the buckets of water out with us? Hey, Jesus, why aren't you giving us directions? No, they didn't say that. They say, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? They attacked and pointed at the heart, the value of Jesus, of them. They weren't describing his external actions. They already thought that his actions revealed a heart that did not love them. Are you like that sometimes? I know I am. See, because if we can even look at and, and just remember the things that God has done in our lives... And if you're, if you're a Christian today, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not because you're so good, but it's because God is so great. And he has sent his son to die on the cross for your sins that he did not commit so you can have his life that you do not deserve. If you meditate on the gospel, 
or even a little bit each day, I think our grumbling has to find itself in conflict and battle and and lowers, or at least it's diffused, or where you almost feel like, you know what, I can't have this horrible attitude because look at Christ, look at Christ, look at Christ. I can't have that attitude. If we even meditate and reflect on the actions of Jesus, we might not be where we are sometimes when we grumble. But see, we just cut right through that. We bypass what he has done, and we cut to the heart, and we say, Jesus, lover of my soul, you said you would never let me go. What is this? What is this? It's not fair. That phrase, by the way, is like one of those phrases that I, 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 all I can do is, you know, you know, make decisions in my own home. But I, that's a phrase I don't like to hear. This whole idea of it's not fair. Is it just comes from a place in which we're forgetting the cross? That is so unfair. The cross is so unfair. Do you believe that? That the cross is unfair? Because if you do, nothing in your life will seem unfair. Have you asked that question before? In your way, from your circumstances, in your life, to God, do you not care that we are perishing? Our lives are over. I'm going to die. My friends will cast me out. I'll never be able to walk through the halls of school again. The colleges, they will never overlook that mistake that I made in my class. Oh man, I can never go back and compete and do well in that competition or get that five on the AP or I, I just can't do that again. Jesus, do you not care that I am perishing? You know, if I was the son of God, if I was the anointed one, if I was the Messiah and I hear my disciples doing this kind of thing, I'd be like, bring it, waves. I'd be like, you know what, let's just flip the boat like this. You know, let's, let's, and then shake it around a little bit, give them a headache first, make them throw up first, even more, and then just, you know, one by one, off with them. Yeah, that's, that's unbateful. But what did Jesus do? Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You know what Jesus just did? Jesus just busted a messianic move. He calmed a storm. Only the Messiah can do that. That's what the Old Testament prophesied. That the Messiah would have power over nature. That the Messiah would have control over the elements that people do not have control over. Not only did he stop the storm, he did it with a few words. You know, there's always people that are trying to manipulate the circumstances around you. Right? But just like 
now you're trying to you know do different things and, and maybe we're trying to control different things well people that claim to be special in jesus time they might say some spells or they might you know like offer some sacrifices or they might give certain things to certain people in the hopes of let's say affecting weather or producing wealth they might go to a fortune teller they might go hire some kind of a pagan priest and and they'll do some chanting for them Jesus did not need to do that. Jesus didn't go through a process. Jesus didn't say, you know what, let me figure out what to do. Let me open up my book of wise, magical spells and come up with the right one. Let me get the right equipment. Let's all stand in the right places. No, Jesus just spoke. And if that in and of itself doesn't connect you with the God of Genesis 1, in which from nothing, God says, let there be light. And there it was. Nothing else does. Jesus speaks things into existence. He's the only one that does that. Other people pretend to. He's the only one that does. And the wind ceased. As if nature can obey. The wind ceased. It's like, okay, okay, got it. Taking your orders, I got it. And it was still, and there was a great calm. You know, I had mentioned in the beginning about how, you know what, in a lake like this, you know, maybe these kind of storms are kind of extraordinary. You know, did Jesus do this on purpose? You know what? It's all of those things. Because whether it was God sending the storm, Jesus knew they were going into this, whether it was demons or Satan, you know, sending these trials to try to stop Jesus because we see in chapter 5, and Pastor Henley will get there, but in chapter 5 you see that there was a legion of demons that was possessing a man. So maybe this is all setting up that, you know what, these demons and, and Satan was fearful and wanting to deter Jesus from his ministry, so they sent the storm. It doesn't matter because God is in control of all of this. If Jesus didn't want to go into this storm, they would have gone into it. The fishermen would have caught it. They could have stopped it. But see, Jesus wanted to take them into this. Put that on your head for just one second to imagine that the one who loves his disciples deeply is the one that whether it is through this angle of the source of the storm or that angle of the source of the storm, he is taking them through it for their good. This storm was for them. And only God can do this. In the same way that Jonah had to be thrown overboard so that in the belly of the fish he is singing praises to God for his faithfulness and goodness. See, that's not a likely place for anyone to praise God. Fish is gross and stinky when you're inside and when you're outside. But they are able through these circumstances and through God's work, Jonah praises. So he makes this messianic move. Settles the sea, but also settles the doubts. Verse 40. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
It's kind of funny. So, you know, when the sea and the water was coming and wind and everything, they're shaking their boots, right? They're scared. And... Well, after it calmed down, apparently now they're just peeing in their pants because it's still scary. I mean, for some reason, it's all peaceful. It's, you know, a glassy sea and it's the wind, but, but they're just, you know, they, they, they can't pull themselves together. They're still afraid. And Jesus wanted to teach through this. See, the connection that Jesus makes is this. The reason why the disciples or any of us can become fearful to the point of death in our external circumstances, whether it's weather or grades or relationships or our plans, our hopes, our aspirations, the reason why we could be deathly afraid is because our faith is placed in the place where it shouldn't be. See, our faith is placed in the success, in the accomplishment of our desire, and not in something greater. With that one verse, Jesus makes that connection. That if you're walking around life, and I'm not saying that there aren't things to be afraid of. There's a lot to be afraid of in life. Okay, Wisdom teaches you that. The sermon reminds you of that. But this kind of life-altering, like, constant anxiety and shaking and feeling insecure. Some of us might feel that. Well, Jesus makes the connection. I hope that we would all humbly listen here is that our faith is placed in the success of that thing. And he wants to offer a source where you can deposit your faith that's greater than things that you can't control. See, the fishermen hit the wall when they realized that their expertise and their wisdom and their training and their experience could not combat the storm. And this is all they had. They're fishermen. It's also why later on, when you, you know, read in other places, when Jesus teaches them how to fish, they're like, oh, come on, dude. I mean, it's, it's personal, right? It's like, don't tell me how to fish. Don't tell me how to overcome a storm. I'm a fisherman. It's my thing. But see, they put their identity and their security in that thing. And by virtue that each of us probably has a few things as a student, as a son or a daughter, as a friend, as a volunteer, as a worker of some type, as a leader somewhere, as an aspiring fill-in-the-blank. That's our thing. That's what we're living for, whether we're thinking about it or not. And Jesus is saying that if your security is in those things alone, in the success and the failure of those things, when those things fall apart, your life will fall apart. They will. And it took the disciples being carried into the storm for them to be taught this lesson. Because Jesus can tell them, you know what? Trust in me. Believe in me. And they're like, you know what? That's great and all. Let's keep going. Fishing is my thing. Don't tell me where to find my security when it's the things that I'm good at. When the things that you're good at is why you're living... If the opportunities that you have and the things that you can achieve is the only reason why you exist and you wake up in the morning, that is why you will be depressed and shattered and broken when things don't go your way. That's hard to hear. 
that that could be the greatest news that you've ever heard today. Because that's not the only thing you can put your faith in in life. What you're good at. Someone's always better than you. Someone's always smarter than you. Someone's taller than you. Someone's more talented than you. Someone is going to make more money than you. Someone's going to have more friends than you. Someone's going to be more popular than you. So where's your faith? Verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I would take that officially as the greatest compliment that Jesus can receive from fishermen. That's it. There is nothing greater that anyone can receive from fishermen than this. Because pretty much what they are acknowledging in faith is that everything that their life is all about, Jesus is the master of that. Jesus rules over that. The weird thing is, they're still afraid. But this is not a bad kind of fear. This is the kind of fear you know, when you're, I don't know, like, on top of a very tall tower. I mean, we visited the space in, you know, in Seattle. It, it was just okay. I've seen taller. <laughs> you can imagine a really, really high tower. Or maybe, you know, you're in that Grand Canyon thing and, like, in that, you know, part where you can go over a glass thing and you go over it. But then someone, you know, tells you that, you know what? It's kind of a new thing that we've got going here. But, you know, we're going to open up one of the panels in the bottom with people standing on it. Sometime in the next hour. I, 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 if I was standing there, I'd be some fear there. you like, oh, are you serious? It's, it's like, because the Grand Canyon is so huge and so majestic and so beautiful and so tall and you're so small and you're like, you know what? I'm just going to wait until the hour is over, right? I'm not going to stand over the Grand Canyon and bottom falls out and you fall too. It's a fear. But it's a fear of respect. It's a fear saying that you're so small, Grand Canyon's so big, if it wasn't for that little glass panel holding you up, you're going to the bottom and you're going to shatter into a billion pieces. Don't be foolish. Don't be stupid. Don't be unwise. Be afraid. Be very, very afraid. This is where the disciples are at now. When Jesus went on their turf, rescued them, from their area of expertise and not just talked about loving them. He loved them through this. Because the greatest thing you can do for someone that you love is to point them to the greatest source of fulfillment and satisfaction in life. And that is to know God. to be in relationship with the one that made you, to be in communion with the one that can truly satisfy your yearnings, to be the one that doesn't judge you for what you haven't done or you have done. You're already accepted for the sinner that you are and the imperfections that you carry and all the flaws that you have. There's nothing that you can do for which God will be like, oh my gosh, that's it, he's out. If you put your faith and trust in his son. Because his son 
for all of that hardship and pain and suffering and punishment for you. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. You know, sometimes people look at a passage like this and they're thinking, okay, well, you know what? Um, yeah, you know, if I want to get straight A's, then i got to trust in Jesus. No, no, no. That's not the point. Do you, do you guys see, like, it wasn't about what you can get from Jesus, but what Jesus offered to his disciples and then to us is simply the greatness and the majesty of himself. If you have Jesus, if you know Jesus, if you believe in Jesus in a way in which your faith is fully in the basket that he is holding out with his nail-pierced hand, you will be rescued. And for some of us, that might mean that there's various types of success in life. But for some of us, he may exactly rescue us from the idol that success brings, that takes our eyes off of him. So that we can remember that in the midst of the storm, through the wind and the waves, he is still faithful. He is still faithful. The stars may refuse to shine, and time eventually will be no more as we know it. But he is faithful. He is faithful. And that is where we need to put our faith in the one who is faithful. Trust him. Not just with your lips when you come to church on Sundays. Trust him. Not just with 10 minutes each morning of quiet time and devos. Trust him more and more with your life, with your heart, with your priorities. And as weird as it might be, the best place you can be is where you just are overwhelmed by the greatness of this God that has you kind of shaking in your boots like, oh my gosh, you know, that's God. He's huge. But on the flip side, you're like, I'm his child. The bigger my dad is, the better. He's going to scare away all the bad people. He's going to make a way for me. He's going to protect me. He's not going to abandon me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done. We thank you, Lord, that the smallest miracle that we saw today is actually the calming of the storm. That's easy. Because you made everything that would go into any storm. If you made the world with a word, if you made human beings out of dirt, what's a little bit of storm? That's nothing. Lord, we praise you because in your greatness, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. That through these miracles that are small for you, they were impressive and life-changing for the disciples to where they gave up their lives because they loved you out of the overflow of your love for them. Help us today, God, to remember 
for that we don't go through life just to have smooth sailings through it. But Lord, as you reveal your son Jesus to us in his beauty, in his majesty, in his holiness, in his purity, in his kindness, his perfect sacrifice for us, help us to cling to him, to love him, to live for him. Lord, we pray, Father, that you would open up our schedules and our priorities and our lives, God, so that we would seek to pursue a relationship with you, not just put you in a box so that we've done our Jesus thing for the day. May we then also seek to love your people in word and in deed, and to be a light to the world in word and in deed. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us your kindness. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to be at the same time fearful, but yet also overwhelmed by your unashamed love for your people. In your son's mighty name I pray. Amen.